right? I am digitally challenged. Is that better? Is that okay? I'm probably not on yet, am I? Am I on? Morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Walt. Um, I've been is that better? Um, a few weeks ago, as I was reading through the pastoral epistles, uh, the three T's: Titus, First and Second Timothy. Um, it struck me. You don't need to turn there. I just wanted to read something real quick. Um, Paul's entrance as he's talking with, with Titus and he says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ago but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation of which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus my true child. I thought who writes like that? Who talks like that? It is sort of pops out of him. I look through Paul's letters and Romans he kind of starts like that with a little bit of a theological treatise if you will before he actually says hi. Um, when Paul is getting ready to write whether it's to Titus or Timothy or at Ephesus it's not like he sits down and says you know what I'm going to write me some scripture and 2,000 years from now it's going to be put in a book and people are going to write hundreds of books and spend gallons of ink trying to figure out my syntax. He's writing, it flows out of his heart. It's who he is. It's who, he, what he has spent his time meditating on. It's where he lives. I, I've thought about what, what Paul's life was like. Not our Paul, but I'm glad we don't have an apostle named Steve because we'd be in trouble. But, you know, Paul goes through his, if you look in Acts and in his letters, you kind of get this impression he, he preaches in synagogues. He preaches in homes. Uh, he's out walking, or he spends a lot of time walking. He spends quite a bit of time on boats. Um, there's maybe some donkey riding, not really sure. He makes some tents. He spends time praying, and obviously he's studying the scriptures because he quotes them a lot. And I suspect that when he wasn't doing those ministry, quote-unquote, things that were part of, his, of who he was, that his mind defaulted to what he's talking to Titus about or what he's talking to the Ephesus church about. That Paul's mental default was meditating on the nature and the glory and the majesty and the wonder of God and who we are in him and who he is in us. Because all this stuff that he writes, it pours out of who he is as a person and somewhere along the line, the Holy Spirit comes along and makes it scripture. How that works, we don't know, but that's fine. We'll call it good. So in Ephesus, you know, he starts out in chapter 1, and he just goes into this whole amazing text of basically who we are now, what Christ has done in our lives, what, what is waiting for us in eternity, what God has granted to us, that we exist for his glory. And then in verse 18, he says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power who believes. So there's this... In the middle of this thing, there's these little prayers. And all through Paul's letters, you see these little prayers. All of a sudden, he just shoots them up. Why? Because that's kind of where his heart and his mind are, I think. That's, it's just, it just sort of naturally flows out of him. So he spends most of chapter 1 talking about basically where we are now in Christ. Chapter 2, he spends mostly talking about where we were. We're sinners, saved by grace. 
for most of us in this room, maybe everybody, we were going, we were Gentiles, and God in his purpose and plan, Genesis 12 starts, he planned for the Gentiles to be enfolded into the kingdom, just the Jews didn't know it, it was there, but they didn't pay attention, anyway, so he talks about how that has happened, that we were outside the kingdom, but now we're in it, then in, um, the beginning of chapter thir- uh, 3, I keep saying 13, chapter 3, he starts to pray. And Paul talked about this last week. Uh, he says, for this reason, and he talks about his, his calling with the Gentiles, and he says, you know, and he goes off into this thing about how God has granted to him the privilege of revealing the mystery that the Gentiles are part of this whole gig. In the middle of that, he throws out a little thing about that this is all towards God's eternal purpose of proclaiming to the heaven in the heavenlies the glory and the wonder of Christ and his grace and his majesty and that we get to take part in that. That's, there's something about God's end game in that whole, those two little verses. But. So by the time he gets to verse, the passage that we're looking at today, he's, he's kind of spilled out of his heart all these things about who we are, who he is, where we were, where we are now, and it just burst forth in a prayer. You can almost hear him, because he started out in verse 1, he says, for this reason, and then he gets off into the Gentile thing and his revelation, and he says, you can almost hear it anyway. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth derives his name, that he would grant you. Jews typically stood, and the early Christians, when we have pictures in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, a posture when prayer, this was quite often. This is what they did. And that's, that's cool. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, okay? And it was, it was uh, what they did in the, te- the temple, what they did with tabernacles. Paul looks at him and he says, for this reason I bow my knees before Father. And I, Paul is not this staid theologian. I think he was a wild man. He was nuts. You look in Acts, and there's different places where you can just see this little mind turning, and he throws a grenade into the situation. He just can't help himself. And I don't think he was this mental giant, which he was, but there's a lot of emotion in Paul. And he says, I bow my knees before the Father. And he gets down on his knees, and he cries out this prayer that he's going to share with us. It's been called a report of prayer, and it, it sort of is a description of how he prays. You know, but I think he's praying while he's talking about how he prays. It just sort of comes out of him. That's what's there. And he says, So I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on heaven and earth derives his name. So the question becomes, so who is the family on heaven and earth? We probably qualify for the on earth. I think that that's pretty much agreement. So who are the ones in heaven? It kind of falls into two categories for most people. Either it's all the saints that have gone before us, Old Testament guys, New Testament guys, everybody that's died already. So they're the families in heaven. Or the other alternative is generally is it's the angelic hosts. And the reason for that is that, one, Paul has spent a fair amount of time talking about the heavenlies. So there's some contextual stuff in there that makes sense. And two, the word that is used for families, um, pateria, is it actually means the head of the clan or a grouping. So it doesn't have to necessarily mean mom, dad, and the kids. Okay? So it's either or. And, and, but the kicker is I don't think that really matters because I don't think that's Paul's point. 
He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives his name. I think it's a merism. And a merism is, is when you have a couple words or a phrase that means more than the sum of its parts. So if I say I lost my keys and I searched high and low throughout my house, what do I mean? I looked everywhere, right? High and low. We, go, we talk about God being the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It doesn't mean just simply he was there at the beginning and he'll be at the end. It means he's there everything and everything in between, right? The four corners of the earth. The globe is not round. What do we mean? Everything, every place. So I think that's Paul's point in this. He says, the, the one whom every family on heaven and earth derives its name. In other words, God is the originator of everything and everybody. And the God, the, the God that Paul is kneeling on his knees before and he's crying out to is the God. It's the Genesis 1-1 God. In the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is, this is the one, Paul says, that I'm coming to right now to ask on your behalf. He has resources. Everything is named after him. Everything, he starts everything. He's originator, originator of everything. That he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory. I love this. If I'm asking God to grant, what am I doing? I'm asking him to give something that I cannot give on my own. Paul recognizes that this whole thing is about revelation. We are desperately needy for God to reveal himself to us. We can't learn our way into it. We can't think our way into it. I can understand truth, but it's God that pops it alive in my soul and yours. And Paul gets on his knees and he says, we've been talking about this stuff now for two, two and a half chapters. And I, they can understand the mechanics of it, but God, if you don't explode something in their high, hearts and their minds, it's not going anywhere. We can read and know, but if, if God doesn't reveal, so he cries out to the God and he says that you would, he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And then he starts into the prayer. The, the prayer is built around three henna phrases. It's a Greek word translated henna, H-I-N-A, and it basically means that, so that, in order that. Some, it's a purpose statement, okay? So I could say, I went down to the store, henna to buy bread, to buy bread. That's my purpose of going to the store was to buy bread. So Paul builds this prayer, it just comes out of him, out of these three purpose statements. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I'm sorry, back up. So you may be strengthened with power and the Holy Spirit in your inner man so that, Christ, that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us in our inner man. It's interesting, when, Paul, when you look at Paul and um, you read through his stuff and he's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, I, I wonder what it would look like for Paul. Over in Colossians, uh, you don't have to turn there, but um, I'm going to read this real quick because it, it kind of fits after Philippians, right? He says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And then he says, For this purpose also I labor according to 
this power that works mightily within me. In Thessalonians, he says, Our word did not come to you in word only, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. 1 Corinthians um, 2, he says, I was with you in much uh, in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in pervasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. As you read through Paul's word, it's almost like power, grace, and the Holy Spirit, sort of the, it's hard to define a distinction and a difference between them sometimes. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, For by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace did not prove vain in me, for I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. It's the same phraseology he uses in Colossians 1 when he talks about it's the power laboring in him. But in 1 Corinthians, he calls it grace. The Holy Spirit, which when he prayed this morning, I thought that's really good, because the Holy Spirit is the age to come. He's the power of the age to come. There's a lot of discussion, and it's very true about Paul's, where we live between the now and the not yet. We live in this place that's sort of in between. We get a taste of Jesus, we get some of Jesus, we get a lot of the kingdom, but we don't get it fully, right? It's not completely here, and we know that. All you got to do is look around. All you got to do is look in your life, and you can tell it's not fully here, right? That we just kind of live in this mixed place. Paul says that the Holy, he prays that God would empower them with the Holy Spirit in their lives and their inner man. The inner man is that part of us, it's our heart, will, mind, and emotions. It's the seed of what we live by. And he, he asked God, fill their hearts, the inner man with the Holy Spirit, so that, and then he goes into the second so that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses all understanding. Now, he's writing to believers, right? Last I checked, Ephesus was a Christian church. And he's asked God to fill them with with his spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Well, I thought he already lived there. We talk about our kids when we lead them to Jesus, that Jesus will come and live in their hearts, right? So why is he telling Christians to pray that God would fill their hearts with Jesus? The word for dwell has the idea of being rooted in, being immersed in. Uh, Honer, call it, I love it. He says he's, he colonizes. Colonizes. So I, I think it's cool. So you go into a new country and you, or a new land and you build a hut and then you build a couple more huts and a few more huts and pretty soon you got a town you put some streets in and gradually it expands. And he's asking that Jesus would do that in their lives. He has come in and dwelt He's asking that he would expand and colonize and he'd begin to fill out their lives. Um, I work at a car dealership. We sell high-end sports cars, among other things. And uh, we have a guy named Greg. And Greg is our tech dude, young millennial, loves stuff. I'm analog. (laughs) He is very digital. And uh, Greg's job is to explain to people when you, when you come in and you buy a new Porsche, he comes in, and if you want, he will spend anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour telling you about all the doodads, widgets, features, and functions of your new car. And he 
I, he does it out in front where I can hear him all the time. It's fun to watch. It's fun to listen to. The guy's really smart. He's very engaging. And he says, I can start, I usually start here and go around. I can spend a few minutes with you if you know your stuff. If you have a lot of questions, we can spend as much time as you want so that you can understand the features. You know, cars come with engines, That's, you know, mostly. Uh, they come with tires. Usually have a steering wheel of some form. You know, they have a gear shift of some form. Nowadays, it's a push button. Um, they have windows, doors, seats, usually a heater, fan, things like that. And then there's all sorts of Apple CarPlay and Bluetooth and uh, one-touch windows. And there's all these features and functions that just are ad nauseum. On a Porsche, you can get two million different combinations on a car of stuff. Stitching and all this is, this is nuts. And Greg goes through with them and goes over. So they have all that stuff. So over the next year then, these people come in and they still don't know what they're doing with their car. So they said, how do I do this? You know, Greg kind of went over, but you know. And so they, they have second visits where they can come in and they, after they've been with it for a little while, they figure out, you know, I don't remember how to do that, which is not hard to do because there's a lot of stuff, you know. When we get Jesus, we get the whole car. You get the whole package. You get tires, and you get an engine, and you get a radio, and you get a, well, a CD player maybe, but you get Apple CarPlay, you get Bluetooth, the whole thing. You get everything. You get the joy. You get all of Jesus. You get joy, right? You get the peace of Christ. He comes with the package. You get his love. It comes with the package. The issue is, is that we don't always access what is already there. We get all of Jesus. Paul's prayer is that Jesus would get all of them and all of us. So he prays and he asks God to be a Greg. He asks the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ in them, that they would know his love, that they would know the majesty and the wonder and the beauty, that they would experience his love, that they would experience his joy. If I get Jesus, I get joy. If I get Jesus, I get peace. When I get Jesus, I get his holiness. All that stuff comes with the package. We spend the rest of our lives figuring out how to work all the buttons and features and how he gets worked into the every area of your life. And so Paul gets on his knees before, this, before the Father, from whom every, you know, every name in heaven and earth derives his name, and he asks that he would grant him, the Holy Spirit would strengthen them in their inner man so that Christ could colonize their lives and our lives. And begin to push into every area that we would experience the love that is so endemic to who Christ is. Paul's probably dictating this letter. I don't know that he's sitting writing down. Uh, he's in prison. Did some reading on prisons. A little tough to pin it down. We don't know for sure which prison he was in. Some of the prisons were pretty much like a barracks. And they just kind of sectioned off an area and said, here you are. Uh, prisons were not long-term punishment like we think of them now. They were basically holding cells until um, arraignment or, you know, you go to Caesar in court or whatever. Some of the prisons were horrible. They were basically a hole in the ground carved out of solid rock with not much light. We know that it, when um, Peter and Silas were in prison, they were in stocks, right? In Acts 16. Okay. Um, and that happened quite often. And it, the, the, when God comes and delivers them and the, 
the jailer asked for a torch because he can't see because it's dark in there. There's no lights. This is not Club Med, right? This is, it's a horrible place. Sometimes, sometimes it wasn't half bad. He was in Caesar's house for two years and they were bringing him food and he probably had color television and all the other stuff. You know? So we don't know what his particular situation, but I suspect he was dictating his letter. I feel sorry for the guy that's trying to keep up with him. Now, if Paul wasn't in chains, I picture him doing this. He's talking, and he's talking, and his hands are waving. He says that they may know the length and the breadth and the height and the depth. And then he goes on to something else. He never quite finishes his sentence. And we don't know what the object of those four dimensional words are because he gets into something else. He just, and the poor guy's like, okay, whatever. (laughs) And off he goes and keeps right on writing, you know, because Paul keeps on dictating. So we don't know for sure what he's saying. Uh, general consensus, this is probably love. I think it's another merism. It's a four corners of the earth statement. It's the totality of who God is in their lives. That they may know, that we may know the breadth, the length, the height, and depth. Because then he says, and to know the love of Christ. It would be kind of strange to know the love of Christ and then to know the love of Christ. It doesn't make sense. But he says to this totality that we would grasp the majesty and the excellency of who Christ is and who God is in their lives so that Christ would colonize their lives and in doing so that they would experience the fullness of his love. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. This is a group project, people. It's a community job. We need each other to experience all that Christ is for us. I need to be reminded by you of who I am in Christ and who Christ is in me, and so do you. And part of our job is to stick that in front of each other all the time. That we'd be able to comprehend and and something would happen in us that we finally get it, maybe. Because that love surpasses all understanding. There's, there's no comprehension. Paul runs out of superlatives in this prayer. He's, he starts to almost make up words. He's trying to come up with something to describe the excellency of God. Remember, this is just flowing out of the meditations of his heart. And so he's, he's trying to come up with some way to, to describe the fantasticalness of who God is and the wonder of his love. And he's we'd be able to comprehend with all the saints was the breadth of length, the height, and depth. And the little to know the love of Christ which surpasses understanding. So the Holy Spirit, he prays that the Holy Spirit would come and fill us, that, that he would strengthen our hearts so that Christ would, would dwell, would colonize in us, so that he gets to the end game and he says, so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. This is where Paul's heading towards. Because he's seen God. Remember, he did go to go to heaven. He kind of cheated he had this vision and stuff. And so he's, he's seen the glorified risen Christ. And he says, that's really good. <laughs> he is amazing. He is awesome. And you get to be filled to the fullness of him. That all the excellencies and the beauty and the wonder and the majesty would fill us. This is Paul's prayer. That's what he's after. It's so far beyond our human ability to achieve. 
That's why he starts out saying, God, grant them. We need revelation. We need your Holy Spirit. We desperately need. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to do something. I found myself over the past few weeks thinking about this text a lot. It's one of the advantages of doing a message once in a while. You can kind of ruminate. And, and I feel like I'm here and what Paul's talking about is here. You know, or maybe, you know, there's a, a distance because he is praying for something that I think he experienced and he lived in. I wonder what it was like when, when he talks about in the power. There's a really interesting verse in Luke. Um, you remember when Jesus is walking and the crowds are around him and the woman with the hemorrhage comes up to him and touches him. And Jesus says, who touched me? And Peter's like, there's a hundred of million people around you and you ask who touched them. Everybody's touching you. And Jesus looks at him. This is Luke 9, I think it is. Um, Jesus looks at him and says, no, I felt power go out from me. I felt power. What an interesting thing to say. It's like he could feel something went out of him. And I think that same dynamic is what Paul's talking about. That he experienced that there's a radiant power that's not just a mental agreement or assessment or exercise, but there is a flow. Something energetic is happening in him. If you, if you read, just pay attention, all the power words in the book of Genesis, I'm excuse me, Ephesians, and all through Paul's letters where he uses those kind of phrases. Only God can do these things. Where is Paul writing from? He's writing in prison, right? He's in jail. Paul lived in suffering. You read through the book of Acts, read in 2 Corinthians particularly, even here he talks about being, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord in the next, you know, the next chapter. He's not talking about fixing his situation. This isn't, your best life now. It's not. It is your best life now, but it's not a situational, material, physical, because he is in the middle of his whole life struggles, human, physical struggles, poverty, without food, in the ocean, you you know, go through his life, and he says, in the midst of all this, God is right here. I can experience the fullness of God in this. And he cries out to God to make that happen for the people in the situations that they're in. It's a pretty high target. That's why we need God to do it, because it's impossible for me to make that happen. I look at my stuff and I go, you know, well, it just it wears you down. It, life wears you down. And especially if you have physical things going on or medical stuff or financial stuff or whatever, it wears you down. And Paul lived in it. So when he's praying this, it's not some pie in the sky, oh, my life's rosy. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the God, the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not for 
forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us and life in you, 2 Corinthians 4. I die, you benefit. I die, and the power of Christ in me oozes out on you. I get crushed, and the rose blooms, and the smell comes out. And that's what he's talking about here. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think, according to his power, which works mightily within us. There's three power words in that phrase. Paul's not done. He's looking at the, the fantastic majesty of who God is, and he says, this is all to him, and he says, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. This is one of these words where he almost, it's the only place in the New Testament where it shows up. And it's like he's trying to find a word that describes infinitely more than we could ever imagine or think God is able to do. The word able, which I think is what most translations use, is, is a, it's a dunamis. It's a power word. You could translate it now to him who is powerful to do. Exceedingly abundantly, beyond all we ask or think, according to the dunamis, the power that is at, and then the, that word work is it's energetical. It's in, where we get the word energy from. Energizer bunny, right? Except it's not a Duracell back here. It's the living Christ dwelling in us, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Three times in this one verse, he says, God's power is there. It's in you all the time, all the time, all the time. Reveal that power to him. He falls on his knees and says, God, don't let them miss this. I'm kind of nuts and bolts. I was a technician, mechanic, whatever, worked for probably 30 years, and, and how things work is a big deal to me. I like theology, but if it isn't functional, I was like, oh, whatever. You know, a bunch of blah, blah, blah. And um, I think Paul was that way because all of Paul's theology is, is very functional. It's very practical and very real. And I think he gives us five keys in, in this, just in this text about how, what our end of it is, right? Because God has to reveal it, and then we just need to come to him that way and say, okay, God, here I am. I can't make this happen. You're going to have to do it. We get saved this way. We come to Christ this way, we have to live our life that way, and we're going to die that way. Totally dependent on his, ability, his working in us. Frank Thielman commented that Paul had two burdens. Is that the Ephesians church would understand the greatness, the majesty, and the power of God. And that two, that they would understand the availability of that power to them. So five things that we can posture ourselves, if you will, before God to make this happen, or to at least give him the opportunity. Because he's God, and I, I, I always hesitate to tell people what things look like, because your experience and mine are going to be necessarily different. So what empowering in one person may be a little bit different than in somebody else. But he tells us... We, he does give us some little clues. So, so first thing is to ask. Because well, what's he doing? He's praying. He's going to God. And he's saying, I bow my knees before the Father. Lord, do this thing. Almost all the verbs in this passage 
are present tense, continuous verbs. They're not one-time onlys. I don't think Paul does this eh, once a year. He is on his knees asking God to move. And it, he gives us a model of the same thing. So I've been just praying, God, it's just real. Let the power of God, let your power work in me. You notice he's, he told them that uh, the love of Christ would dwell in them by faith. So I have to ask, I also have to believe that he wants to do it. And I, I have to, I, I kind of assume that. I mean, this is the Bible, right? We're Bible-believing believers. Then we have to look at this and go, okay, God wants this to be happen. It's, it's not some esoteric, theoretical thing, but that it's God's intention. If Paul's praying it, I think it's a pretty good shot that God wants it to happen. Okay? It may not happen next week. It may take a year or ten. What else you got to do with your life? Right? What else is there? It's either Jesus or nothing. We're going to be doing this thing for the rest of eternity. We might as well start now. Right? So... It may take a while. It looks like it's going to be different, but we just keep coming to him. We ask him, and we believe that he wants to do something. God, you, you tell me this. I do this. I, I don't know if it's right, but I, I'll go, when I'm praying, I go, see, you said right here, Lord. And I hold my Bible up to him, but I say, you do it. You said this. I'm going to trust you that you're going to do something with it. If the Holy Spirit's the one that is kicking this whole thing off, then I need to yield to him. I just come to him and say, Holy Spirit, have your way with me. Do whatever. Whatever it looks like, however it sounds, whatever it smells, whatever. I just I acquiesce to you daily. Be God word, because he ends with, you know, to the glory of, of him. To the to glory, you know, it. at the end of the day, my Christ likeness is for his for his glory. That I represent him well. We will we will be like him. John tells us in 1 John 3, um, we'll see him like he is. And we'll, it will be transformed and become like him because we'll see him just as he is. And that's coming. And, but he gives us the opportunity to experience some of that now. Not fully. But I think Charles Hodge said that being filled is a matter of degrees. And, and his point was is that you know, Jesus, we have all of Jesus, but how much of Jesus has of us is degrees. It's, you know, and that's between you and the Lord. But we can encourage each other in that. So be Godward. Be for his glory. Just be, like, get up in the morning and go, this is what I want. And the more you want it, the more it comes up. And the more you think about it, the more it comes up. And you find yourself during the day going, I really want that, God. Remind him. Pestering. I think he enjoys that. I think he enjoys that. He's just like, come on, poke the bear, poke the bear, poke the bear. And then immerse yourself in God's life. <clears throat> As we started out with, you know, in Titus, I think Paul just, this is where he lived mentally. It didn't start out that way, but he grew in it. And he just immersed himself mentally, heart, emotions, everything in the life of God. He said, this is what I want. Everything else pales in comparison. Everything else compels in comparison. Probably the everybody I'm familiar with, the the one guy slash ministry that has probably spent more time on that is John Piper, and in just being immersed in 
in the majesty and the glory and the wonder of Christ. If you have not read his stuff, I encourage you to. It's, it kind of feeds into this. It's really helpful for that. His first trilogy, Desiring God, Future Grace, and um, Pleasures of God, is phenomenal. It's pretty meaty. It's not gonna, you're not going to sit and read it in a weekend. But it's a good companion for what we're talking about, what Ephesians is talking about, what the glory and the wonder that we look at God and say, this is what I want. This is the best stuff on earth. Why would I settle for less? You know? Why would I settle for And I have to remind myself of that because the, I, I, there's um, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, we have brought nothing to the world, and we can take nothing out of it either. You come naked, you leave naked. And I, I cut that out. I, I printed it off, and I stuck it in my desk. It's right where I have to look at it every day. <laughs> you know? I work with billionaires and millionaires and $300,000 cars, you know, and there's a lot of attraction to all that stuff. And it's like, at the end of the day, it doesn't mean squat, really. It's cool, but it doesn't mean squat. And so we need to remind ourselves that a lot of what, that's part of life, and that's okay. But at the end of the day, it's the presence of God in my life that I need to cry out for more of. And the other stuff just sort of fades. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for your faithfulness and your grace, and just thank you for uh, your word and uh, your life in us, for the Holy Spirit that indwells, for the living Christ. We ask that you would colonize us, that you would have more and more of us and of who we, of who you are would just fill us, Lord, that, that the Father would, be, would just fill us, that you would fill us, Lord. Give us a hunger, a desperateness, just that we would be with Jacob. I will not let go of you until you bless me that we would not let go of this until we begin to see a greater and greater increase and then some, Lord. Just have your way with us, Lord Jesus. And uh, 